Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome to episode 10 of Purposely Podcast. For those of you who aren't aware, we purposely speak to social entrepreneurs, charity founders, and all-round awesome people to hear their founder story. Awesome people like Sir Tim Smith, tonight's guest. Tim reflects on the startup years at the Eden Project. We hear about the challenge of COVID-19. We look at the future of Eden across the globe. And we also really reflect on the importance of good people in social entrepreneurship. Enjoy. I know I did. He's also a long-suffering Nottingham Forest fan, which a lot of people won't know. Welcome, Sir Tim Smith. Hi. Very nice to speak to you across the Great Pond. Absolutely. And how is it being a Nottingham Forest fan right now? I mean, it's it makes me very sad watching football and, and seeing no crowds. Well, <laughs> I tell you what, the last few games of Nottingham Forest, I wish there'd been no crowds. So we were just talking about uh, the equivalent of three winters hitting Eden at the and concurrently was that how you yeah, described yeah, it? Yeah, because, because well, what I was saying was normally uh, leisure destinations they're like squirrels they they pick up their wealth in the spring and the um, summer and the very early autumn and then that uh, tides them over uh, the long winter until probably um, March when visitors come again and because we we basically had no spring. And no start of summer. We just came in on July with like at 30, 30% of visitors. And then it went up to 50% in August. Um, we've had to lay off 160 staff, which has been heartbreaking because it's none, it's none of their fault. And we're really popular. So it's like it's kind of counterintuitive. So we're hoping that by doing what we're doing, that we can be successful enough going into the autumn now and maybe make a long autumn run so that when we get to next March we can employ most of them again uh, which would be great because we, we aren't a seasonal place we, we're, we, we're open 364 yeah. um, so uh, anyway <laughs> that bit's been bad the good bit has been A, the whole world now knows that we're interconnected which it would normally probably have taken about 30 or 40 years of, and then just months um, I think people are now being really civilized and working at distance um, by the, all the different media uh, there are, whether it be Zoom or Microsoft or Jeans or anything. Um, and that's getting better and better and better. Um, it saved us a fortune because we <laughs> haven't had to fly all over the world. And we've actually had some really great workshops. It's as if it's a face saving thing. You're not saying to people, we're not interested in you. That's why we're not flying. So when all that sort of nonsense is taken out, so you're just trying to be as efficient as you can, um, then you you actually are very good. We've done it. It hasn't hampered us at all. I even did a um, a groundbreaking ceremony in Qingdao, which is our first Chinese project, which will open in uh, eighteen months' time. I did that on Zoom at three o'clock in the morning. Fantastic. It was the, most, it was the oddest. It was the oddest feeling, but actually, you know what, people. People are kinder and more normal when artificial circumstances mean that you have to behave in a human, um, a human adaptive way. It gets rid of all that kind of male testosterone laden formality 
and people are forced to smile and laugh and actually it makes it was good to get tim smith's take on covid19 and hear how things had been affected at the eden project the next part of the interview is focused very much on the, his founder story it starts with tim as a music producer and a songwriter in london and then is uninterrupted all the way through to the end so uh, enjoy i know i did and you were a music producer um and you were i i like to think of it as swimming around soho making tunes and making thousands but how was it for you well it wasn't quite like that i i I started a rock band at university as i was studying archaeology and anthropology in order to earn some money because i was skin and we were half decent in a local band sort of way although we made more money hiring our PA equipment during the punk boom um, to the big punk bands that were coming up north to uh, Durham and Newcastle. Um, But so at the end of all of that, I went to London with my mate, Charlie, and discovered that on any night of the week, there were 30,000 better musicians than us. So we ended up on the dole. And then a whole series of lucky things happened. I played football on Clapham Common. I kicked a guy really hard. Uh, someone said, do you know who you've kicked? I said, no. They said, he's the lead sound engineer at Abbey Road Studios. So I picked him off the ground. I made a fuss of him. We became friends. I then started recording free at Abbey Road on in dead time. And we were really lucky. We 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 wrote some tunes that got record deals that didn't have hits, but that we had record deals. So we were able to pay everybody that had worked for us for free, um, uh, retrospectively. Um, and then had a, an immense stroke of luck with a lady called Louise Tucker that was an opera singer that had been a babysitter for us. And of course, this is pre-mobile phone days. And I arrived at Abbey Road the following day after the babysitting and the singer called in ill and I couldn't find another singer. So I called the um, lady who'd come to babysit and she sang. And within within uh, two months, our record was number one all over Europe. It was amazing. Um, Fantastic. We had and it, big platinum records with Louise Tucker. Then we worked with a lot of middle-of-the-road acts like um, Barry Manilow, um, Twiggy, and stuff like that. Um, I even actually did some sessions with Motorhead, which is kind of other otherworldly, uh, which was almost exactly the same as working in opera. So, um, you know, it was, it was a very good experience, but I, I loathed it. There was a point at which I thought that middle-aged men ogling young girls and pretending they liked their music just didn't feel suitable for what I wanted to do. So I um, I went to Cornwall uh, yeah. for no reason other than it was raining and I was on holiday there and I went into an estate agents, saw a house I liked, didn't even think about the fact that I lived in London. And the next thing I knew, I lived in Cornwall and I wanted a new change of career. And that led to, um, uh, I accepted the donation of a pig uh, a guy knew that I had a garage without a car in it and he had a pig that was going to otherwise have to go to slaughter because he didn't have a sty for it. And he said, would I keep the pig? And this pig turned that was called Horace. And Horace and I became firm friends. And at a certain point, I realized he was lonely. So I introduced him to Doris and the two of them made sweet piglets. And that that led me to believe that the future was going to be about having a rare breed park. And that's how it all began. I decided I want to have a red reed park. I went to look for some land. I found some land. I found out who owned it. I went to see the man who owned it. Um, and he gave me a very hot cup of tea. And I've got very sensitive lips. But instantly he told me that I couldn't have the land. But I couldn't leave because I had this hot tea in my hand. So we started talking. 
and he he then discovered that I had been an archaeologist years ago, and he uttered the immortal words, "I have need of an archaeologist," and I couldn't believe it. And it just so <laughs> happened, all the land next to where we were standing um, from um, relatives, and he had no money. So there's this, this two hundred acre estate, um, which uh, no one had been into most of it for. 70 years and the following day I cut my way in with him I fell in love with it and I knew nothing about plants whatsoever but one of the things the music business taught me and I always say to young people as a piece of advice if your intuition tells you something is fantastic and you wake up the following day and it's still fantastic trust it mm. um, because actually I know this sounds crazy but if you're not a freak and you love something, there will be millions of other people that love it too. Therefore, the issue is marketing. Mm, yeah. Most, most of the problem that people have in whatever sphere are to do with the fact they don't know how to communicate what they have and why they believe in it um, and think it's a, a simple act of selling. It's not. It's an emotional engagement with people to know that you're enthusiastic. And, and we'll probably come on to that later. But uh, with Heligan... Um, which was the first of the major successes uh, that we enjoyed. Um, it was simply a question of, of, of having a magnificent obsession. The National Trust had looked at the place once and said it would cost far too much, I think 14, 15 million to restore. Um, and me and my friend John, who was a builder who was working uh, for me at uh, on the farm, uh, went in and we did it. And we probably did the whole thing for about £450,000. Um, all in um, and we just begged stole borrowed um, we, we persuaded the television to come and do a documentary uh, it won the documentary of the year award um, and it was perfect in every way except one it forgot to say that we weren't yet open to the public and the next day the public started to pour into what looked like a world war one reenactment scene <laughs> wow astonishing in our first year without intending to be open we had forty thousand visitors and um, I realized that people love to be in at, the, at the, the grassroots level. People love to see the work being done. So what a business model. Eventually, my, my, another one of our builders, Tiggy, he, he said, look, I'm going to get some bolt croppers and I'm going to cut the toilet out of the portable toilet. And then I'm going to get some cloakroom tickets from um, Woolworths and we'll sell tickets to come in. So people were paying to come in and then they were coming into the middle of the garden and saying, what's up there? And you say, no idea, mate, but here's a machete. Why don't you go and find out? So business models go pretty unbeatable. Yeah. Um, it reminds me actually of the, I think it's Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn, where he persuades people that painting this garden fence is the coolest thing to do. And people pay him to go and paint his fence. Um, and I think it's something like that. But it can get, what I learned from it all was that people are very keen to get involved with stuff if the picture is big enough and exciting enough. So when people say to me, God, how did you raise so much money? I said, I said the thing I'm impressed by is when someone earns $5,000 or $50,000, for example, because it's very much more difficult to persuade people to give money for something that doesn't capture their imagination. Mm. Um, but if you can create a picture which is big and it's a stage on which you can tell the person that's going to contribute money or, or labor uh, that there's going to be a spotlight that falls on them, it's very, very powerful. I also realized something early on, which is to distrust people who, especially middle-aged podgy men, who who look with their eyes going up to the heavens, saying, we must do this for our children and our children's children. And you say, leave it out, mate. You know, people who talk like that, 
they what they mean is let's delay what you need to say is let's do it for us now right now bang mm -hmm. go and um all this stuff about young people i love young people i, I you know and i we, we we encourage them all over the place and we mentor them but the people who really really are the most valuable on the planet are the people over the age of 40 who had dreams at 19 which they feel they've disappointed and they carry around this little nugget of disappointment around them a bit of depression if you can show them a story in which that dream they had of themselves can be reborn, they go nuts for it. Most of the serious people who've helped me in my life, both at Heligan and at Eden, are people who, they got the second chance. And we yeah. all need a second chance. And it needs to feel like it was worth getting up in the morning because this is something almost, uh, I don't have the comfort of religion, but I'll use the word biblical. It has a kind of drive, people kind of uh, sort of, obsessional look in their eyes because they want to do this amazing thing and they see other people doing it and then suddenly there's a belief that they can have it and the other thing is if, if you work in poison places or places where the economy has had a hard time you realize some very interesting things are going on number one is people will always tell you oh this is a really poor area you know there's not much chance you i can write the whole spiel for what, what people you suddenly realize that there's a whole group of people who are vested in wanting it to be a failure. They cannot believe that it's them that is failing. It mm. must be something that is imbuing the land with this sense of poor hope or, you know, it's like a pall covering the land. And that's why when you do something that works, like when I did Heligan, initially, there were quite a lot of people who really disliked me. And I realized they disliked me. Well, I'm, there may be other reasons they disliked me, but the main reason they disliked me was that I had shown them that it was a lie. It was a lie because Heligan then became successful. It was voted the, the nation's favorite garden. The nearby town of Mevagissi, where there were loads of pubs, none of them with any investment, there was nothing else going on. Suddenly there were restaurants, the pubs were done up, there was art galleries, uh, the fishing cooperative suddenly had a market to us and all sorts of stuff. And suddenly other people started to invest because they started to look at the land. Oh, it isn't haunted then. And that's what happened when we built Eden as well. We built Eden. And then suddenly all those stories about mid, mid Cornwall being a place to come and die and cowboy country, people start to say, actually, you know, you, there are ocean views from up here. <laughs> and, and, and look, you know, all these Cornish folk, uh, they've been trained to become really good at what they do. And then we got hated by the local pubs and restaurants who said, you've, been, you've had some state support and you're paying people better than we can afford to do it. They were paying, you know, horse feathers money. And um, anyway, to compete with us, they had to raise their, their wages. And lo and behold, what happened? You raise people's wages, you raise their respect, they perform far better. Then other people say, that pub's rather good now, should we go? Yeah, I mean, you kind and, of aspirational kind of MP have had on, on Cornwall. I kind of, I see it as a nation state who relied on its past a lot and, and was almost, like you say, quite happy to sort of fail and actually, you know, the Lost Garden of Heligan, Eden, changed all of that for me. Yeah. No, I think it's right. And, and you know, wherever we go, like Morecambe um, in the northwest, you know, on Morecambe Bay, um, we've got a project there. And the population have completely embraced us because, because of Eden in the south. Because we came up, like, we said... Hang on, this place is really depressed. It's in the bottom 
3% of economic achievement in Britain and blah, 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 blah. And we go up there and we say, hang on, you're looking at one of the most important um, natural resources in the world. Morkham Bay is just astonishing. It's got a tide race that can outpace a man. It has, it's like an airport for birds migrating. Yeah. Um, and you look out to see, and on the other side, what do you see? The Lake District. You can actually stand there and watch weather being created as the 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 the, the, the winds and the moisture develop around the hills on the other side. It is bliss, and it's amazing. Well, once people start talking like that, they go, oh, "So it is." And you go, um, "The business plan we developed, or what would David Harlan developed actually for Morecambe? Uh, it was one sentence long. Um, we then made it a bit longer, but we were standing in front of a whole bunch of uh, regional." Um, uh, public sector people. We said, which bit do you not understand? That half an hour to our north, 17 million people a year holiday, and half an hour to our south in Blackpool, 7 million people a year holiday. Do you think we are so criminally bad at what we do that it is impossible for us to be able to um, harvest some of those visitors to come to us? Mm. And everybody roared with laughter. Of course it is. Um, but sometimes you need to dream big and then people say you're getting above your station. And then you say, actually, big comprises loads of smalls all linked together in chain link. And yeah. you can get real wealth going deep into the um, neighborhoods by, um, you know, one of the reasons we're talking is, is about how uh, social enterprise can have a really big economic impact. And, what to do that you've got to understand how capitalism works so for example a lot of businesses who say they want to help the local community no they don't they want to be saying that they're helping the local community mm. because if you want to help say for example eden if we want to make sure that all our sourcing is local the first thing you realize is that most of your local sourcing cannot cope with something as big as eden yeah so how do you help them grow they cannot grow if you only give them a short-term contract because the bank won't lend them the money to grow. However, if you think in advance, you might give them an 18-month contract to supply you, then the bank gets confident. They then lend that company money, and then you mentor that company to produce products that are up to the standard that you wish to receive. And lo and behold, suddenly they're at a, a completely different benchmark of performance, and they're getting markets, just not just us, but other places. It's, it's quite simple. You and I both know that. But a lot of people do a lot of talking and not enough action. Yeah, absolutely. That. But localism, you know, you can create enormous amounts of wealth by managing and collaborating locally in a way uh, where you consciously decide, um, you consciously are deciding that your place is going to be, um, if you like, symbolically a catalyst for everybody else. And you stop saying it's me, 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 me. Yeah. You work what profitability means to you. And then you start to work out, if we want these businesses to do well into the long run, let's make these deals really fair with a capital F, you know. Mm. And it's possible. And you can be capitalist. It's just conscious capitalism. It's about being capitalist, but wanting your neighbours to do well too. Yeah, taking everyone with you. And in terms of that, um, you know, thinking big, like, you know, there's no bigger thinker than yourself. And um, people, I imagine, looked at you very strangely. So you're, so we're mid-80s when you arrived in Cornwall. Um, you arrived from London on your own, 
with others? What was this? I was your... with, my, my, with my then wife and three children. Um, and um, we, we would, my, my then wife and I, and the kids sort of worked on Heligan. I, I, I got passionate about it. She always used to say, we can only afford to have one, one member of the family passionate about it because you feel so strongly that if something went wrong, and both of us felt that strongly, the depression would probably kill us. Therefore, if I hold back until it's sort of flying, then uh, we can protect ourselves, which actually, in hindsight, was a very intelligent thing to say. Um, it was also slightly ironic because she was the one who adored gardens. And I could only tell you, and I'm not exaggerating, I could tell you green side up. And that was it. Um, <laughs> I've I seen... Pretty thereafter, mind... Um, and as I've got older, I've got to understand that because plants don't, can't sing and dance, um, most of us are a bit plant blind. We don't look at them. We don't, you know, they're not rock and roll, are they? They're not like a football match. No. The weirdest thing is when, and, and this brings us back to COVID, I think an awful lot of people who've been stuck at home have got into planting a few things and they may not have been very interested, but it's something to do. And then they'd become like, wow, look, you know, it's like, you remember that when you were five and six growing cress and stuff, they've got all excited at seeing things grow. And then they start to feel the responsibility to nurture it. And then they get a bigger. And it's really been really wonderful to see that, actually, really wonderful to see so many people get excited about growing some vegetables yeah. and then getting just as angry with the damn caterpillars who eat the vegetables. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's like a giant soap opera out there, you know. Life stresses just get uh, transferred. So. I've seen uh, the sketchings for the original Cornish um, Eden Project Dream on the back of napkins in a pub, uh, which you sketched because it was. I know you're a co-founder, but it was ultimately your dream uh, to to, to uh, come up with these biomes uh, and uh, the China clay pit in which you chose. How did that come about? Well, I uh, it, it's sort of it's quite a short and easy story. I I was very influenced by the story Lost Worlds by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And the idea for the Eden Project was basically imagine the crater of a volcano, which no one can see that inside it is this civilization. It's just hidden from view. And it was very easy to be thinking like that because all over the mid-Cornwall landscape, you have these huge ziggurat-shaped mounds of spoil. You know, they're called the Cornish Alps, uh, rather jocularly. Um, and so I, I started looking for a hole and I went to see every single major hole in the ground in Devon and Cornwall. And I was despairing because I couldn't find one that felt right. Um, by which I mean, I had a very strong sense that that which I found would feel as if it really was um, a crater. And so it would have a border all around its edge. You know what I mean? Quite a mm. sense of, um, you know, the Chinese word feng shui, it, it has a... Um, a sense of containment because I had this sense all humans love containment. That's why towns have walls. Mm. Yes, it's to keep out the wolves and the marauders, but it's also a sense of collecting us together in times in, in terms of a geography. So when I found Badelva Pit, it was coming to the end of its life. Um, but I knew the moment I saw it, I, 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 in those days I smoked cigars and I, I cut my way through gorse and eventually I got to the edge of this pit and there underneath me was this incredible white hole with bits of that looked as if someone had attacked it with a saber because 
there were bits of red you know, iron iron ore um liquid um just i don't know what leaching into the into the white and wheeling above all of it were a pair of buzzards it felt a bit like you know one of those scenes from uh, the, the treasure of the sierra madre and i just saw it and i knew i just knew instantly i mean instantly i saw it this is it and i'm um, fascinated to think at, at that point did you think that it would be become what it would become that it would you know bring a million a billion pounds to the cornish economy it would be you know described as the eighth wonder of the world it would you know thousands of people would flock to it each year did, is that was that the vision then or was it it's evolved to be quite honest um i would be lying if i said it wasn't the vision I was wow. absolutely certain this was going to be successful. I hadn't got any doubts at all. The only doubt I had in the whole time that we set up about this journey was when in 1999, once we were already funded, um, the whole hillside collapsed after torrential rain. Um, and this great Irish guy, Jerry O'Leary, who was the project manager, he said, do you trust me? And I had no choice. I said, yeah. And he just made these incredible phone calls to 60 people that he knew, the roughest, toughest crew you've ever seen. If you've ever seen the film Con Air, the people, yes. the people in that movie were like pussycats compared to the people who turned up on our site. And what began then was six weeks of the most gorgeous um, industrial choreography you can imagine as they rebuilt the hillside. And I learned, if, even if I didn't know it then, I learned... Um, how exciting it is to be a human being with people that clever and also to realize that the cleverness to change the world doesn't actually necessarily reside in boardrooms or universities that some of the people who really shape the world are the people who've actually had dirt under their fingernails and they've got the kind of common sense um approach to stuff where their their experiences taught them things it's not book learning and I find myself with Eden as we develop Eden and we're, we're, we're developing, if you like, some of our leadership training modules and things here, which are very popular. More and more, I'm realizing that one of the great problems of our culture is that we give too much respect to dead institutions, um, that we actually um, create a, a tremendous library hush around universities and governance structures. Uh, and sometimes it's at the expense of new thinking. An awful lot of people I know have got a complete vocabulary about innovation, but the vocabulary is a bit like whistling as a child to stop a crocodile biting your toes from under the bed. They want to be seen to be innovative, but they wouldn't actually recognize innovation if it bit them on the bottom. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you've heard it all, you know, they, they, they create things called centers of excellence and they do joined up thinking. Uh, they've always got creativity and innovation in in the, the mix there. They do leading edge, bleeding edge, ether thinking, um, uh, cutting edge. They do out of the box thinking and they even think the unthinkable. The one thing I would say to anybody listening is that whenever you meet people who talk like that or write like that, beware. Yeah. Uh, and and you're so you're, you know, relatively young family taking what on the face of it is this huge risk. You're trying to explain this vision to people uh, which has never been seen before, you know, a future that hasn't been seen, especially in Cornwall. Um, like, 
what was you know did you did that keep you up at night during that time what was that like do you or do you actually thrive under under pressure and you know it's the only way you can operate no i thrive under pressure i also i don't accept that fantastical things are actually fantastical if you can think them by and large i'm not being ridiculous here if you can think them and you can tell a story which makes it seem exciting, you can bring them into being. I knew that we could build an Eden project. I knew the very act of building it would inspire others. And I knew that it would economically regenerate the area. I knew there would be people who would criticize it and people who would want to talk about traffic. I tell you what, we had more trouble talking about the access road into it. I could have built a nuclear power station in the bottom of it and it would have flown through. Um, because people just they 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 hold on to the things that are at the scale that they are likely to think about because we're all taught from school days we've got to seek permission for this permission for that permission for the other the idea that you might actually proceed in life uh, and seek to just apologize later is anathema and really scary to most people therefore you've got to find the language that when you deal with civil servants you must use all the language of innovation but then tell them that actually every single thing that you're doing has been done before. It's tried and tested. <laughs> That's when they relax. You know? Yeah. It's just the combination maybe hasn't been done before, but each part of it, oh, yeah, very safe. But th this storytelling is, 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 is crucial because um, most often people tell stories that are too small. They're not joined up. I mean, if you were to ask me, what is Eden about? It's actually... Um, an antidote to a world which has reduced science to all the isms and ologies without being able to put them back together again. I always say that my heroes are all the king's horses and all the king's men who want to put Humpty Dumpty together again because I think half of the issues that we are not resolving, say in the area of the remediation of environmental damage and hence climate change that whole massive issue it's far too big for us to worry about mark you can't worry about climate change <laughs> but what you can worry about is how do we um take 10 acres of good land that is actually dying because it's had too much rubbish put in it and how do you have an experiment with a whole bunch of people who are being just objective and see whether you can triple quadruple the organic material in it and watch it absorb carbon because then when you've done 10 acres there are millions of other people in the world who can do another 10 acres and suddenly it's huge. And, and part, of the problem, part of the problem men have, especially men, is that we like blah, blah, blah around a table talking about solving the world's problems. They're always big. But actually, you want to take some areas and demonstrate we can do this. And then there's loads of us who can then take it on. Um, so I'm having a bit of a rant. It's just that I'm very excited about the whole notion of social enterprise being re uh reimagined because in the uk social enterprise was invented and then immediately it got this cancer of goody two-shoes it became oh social enterprise is a, a mechanism that allows people who work for ngos to feel vaguely commercial and enterprising and yeah. you love me because i'm doing good work yeah. I've met more incompetent people in the charity sector than I've ever met in business, more <laughs> vain people as well, because actually your charitable in aims and objectives are no use if you're not actually delivering on your aspiration, are they? I mean, you know this, we're on the same gang here. 
Yeah. Um, so I want I want to infect social enterprise with 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 conscious capitalism, by which I mean I want the people who are running social enterprises to be darn good in their own right at what they do, such that were they to have to run a multinational company, they could do that too. They have the skill set. We should not be making excuses because someone is doing something in an area that is a social good for incompetent management. I think the problem with, for me, the, the problem where the charity sector meets uh, social enterprise and is this around failure. Like true enterprise, in my mind, there needs to be failure. People need to be encouraged to fail and fail quickly, if you like, and then go yeah. again. And I think that's, I've, you know, I think you're on the same page with that. You have been outspoken about uh, British, um, you know, hesitancy around failure. And people get written off as well too soon. And, and I love those people who bounce back. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 failure is a really funny thing. But what, what you know, one of the things I, I never thought I'd say this, but one of the things which is quite interesting about uh, Boris Johnson and also Donald Trump has is that because they've both been in the media, they have a profound disrespect for the media being the font of all knowledge which means that when they're criticised by the media, they don't bat an eyelid. They either call it fake news or they go, yes, 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 I've been a bad boy, but so have you. Like, let's move on. Mm. Um, in a way that other people who are not used to dealing with the media and the judgment of others, they sort of buckle at the knees because, let's be honest, every single leader I've ever met, whether it's from a, a very small organisation to running a country, they all suffer from imposter syndrome. Nobody can quite believe that, that anyone's given them any authority um, and they expect to be found out at any moment. And that's common to all of us. I mean, we all suffer from it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and therefore, one of the antidotes is to actually look people in the eye and say, what, you mean you haven't got the faults I've got then? Come on, move on. And, yeah. you know, I think we allow ourselves to be judged and we allow ourselves to then feel vulnerable and incapable because we've messed up. We all, we all mess up. You know, I've, I've had companies go to the brink and I've, I've also had a great success. And then my vanity meant that I spent all my money proving how, what a genius I was and blew it all again. Um, <laughs> in life is a police your vanity and B be aware of the great humor of not taking the advice you so freely give to others. Yeah. Hey, what what are your disciplines like what does tim smith um do in a day what what kind of keeps you grounded and and focused what keeps me grounded uh what keeps me ground i have a bit of a problem which is that i have four children all of whom think they have to uh mock me on the grounds they think everybody else blows smoke up my bottom but what they don't realize is because I work with my youngsters at, at Eden and, and at Heligan um, and on my other project, that everybody I know knows my kids and they've been infected by my kids' attitude. So I keep saying it'd be really nice to have someone blow some smoke because everybody is ribbing me all the time. <laughs> I need I need some building here. You know, um, I, I just slightly, but to be honest, my whole, uh, if, if you were here with me at Eden, my colleagues do not treat me with the respect of um, a fearsome boss. They treat me with the kind of surprised look you have when you discover that your less competent brother actually can catch a ball brilliantly. 
you know, and um, it, it amuses me. And I actually think that it gives me a great deal of license because I become like, not the village idiot, that's, I'm, I'm being falsely modest by saying that. It, I, I, the court jester, I think I'm allowed to say things because I don't say them painfully, but I do them to provoke people to think into things. So an average day would involve quite a lot of conversations. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking to people all over the world because we did workshops. Um, I will always try and read something every day. I, I am a complete bookworm uh, because I believe that people who don't invest in their brains tend to walk around with their prejudices on them like clothes. Uh, I'm, I'm very obsessed at analysing why I think what I do, because I realise as, as I deal with other people that we're all terribly tribal and we're all so certain about being right. And then you realise you haven't actually questioned whether you're right or not for an awful long time. Mm. And um, the way the world has gone, I think the world is fundamentally different to the days when I thought I was really right. And I, I look at lots of smart youngsters and they... They don't see politics as my generation do, you know, left wing, right wing or whatever. Um, I think um, I think a lot of youngsters, and they really excite me too, are looking at the world from, guys, why are you arguing around the margins? There's some really big issues we need to put right. And when I look at my son's friends, and it'd be the same for you and, 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 and your children's friends, hardly any of them are saying, how can I make the most money in the world? Almost all of them are, are saying, how can we do stuff together in good gangs of people to do really interesting jobs that are making the world a better place? Um, yeah, my frustration is, you know, those millennials being mocked for that as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at Generation X produced the millennial generation and then the millennials get mocked for, you know, big principles and big thinking and, you know, like, and like going back to what I said earlier around taking people with you on a journey, you know, supporting people in, in your environment or your your community and and why should they be mocked why why should those ideals be pushed down like you know we have... it's weakness the people who mock it are weak mm. they're actually weak i mean to be honest if you had a word if you spoke to a bunch of bankers right you have to say are you aware you are the biggest recipients of social security payments in global history now shut up you know, we were supposed to bail you out. Yeah. And you've got to say to Big Pharma, did you really test all those drugs that people then pee out into our water systems that then go into the ocean and then they attach themselves to microplastics and then they refract light and they then kill coral reefs and then we can't absorb carbon and then the planet goes to hell in a handcart? Do you take any responsibility for that? Which bit of grown up do you not understand? Grow up. Mm. And I think millennials are actually asking the sort of questions that grown ups should have been asking and didn't because so many of them were scared you know one, one of the things that happens to people of, of my age and it happens also to people of yours mark is that the way they draw your sting is by flattering you and drawing you into the inside of the establishment which means that oh you it's rather cozy in there because you get to meet all the people who are powerful and then you don't say the things you should have said and then the sort of wrongs that could have been righted if you'd had some righteous anger don't get said loud enough i salute the millennials i actually am disappointed in myself that i lost that anger when i was uh, of, of 19 and i've rediscovered it over the last five years and i'm actually really enjoying being preposterously rude um because i think some people are just unthinkingly pissing our futures up against the wall 
And if you actually really think it's somebody else's chance, what, 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 what's the word citizen mean to you? Are you no more than a consumer? Because mm. I was going to ask you the question, what would be Tim Smith of today's advice to a younger Tim Smith? But actually, it sounds like you wouldn't have any advice. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, loving, I'm loving youngsters. Um, and what I say to my, 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 my youngsters and the, the youngsters I mentor is don't be afraid of big, but just see it as lots of smalls linked together, which I said to you before. Um, I would say, though, the, the, if I was giving advice, I would give two, maybe three pieces of advice. Number one um, is to make sure you take your prejudice for a walk. And one of the ways of doing that is to accept every third invitation you receive. By doing that, you are putting yourself in the fate of random chance. You then will go to places and meet the people you need to meet, but you didn't know you need to meet. Almost every major event of my life has come from accepting the random chance uh, of a third invitation. Um, I can't tell you why, but it remains true today. Uh, the second thing I would say is learn what your weaknesses are. If you've got a great idea, stop wasting your life away doing something you're not very good at. Be prepared to find someone who is good at that and team up with them. So if you want to build an Eden project, you need to have a great talker who can actually conjure a world of magic. And you watch bankers and public servants go all misty-eyed. You can then see the eagle look come back. Yeah, but we've, just been, we've been beguiled by you, Tim. Um, you'll probably waste all the money. So make sure that next to you, you've got someone who's rock hard with finance. Then that make them smile because someone who's rock hard with finance. So then you've got the finance and the dream. This is really, really good. Um, and then they worry about, yeah, but have these people got the experience to build something that big? So the third person you want is someone who's been there, done it, got the T-shirt. Then there is no excuse not to support you. And that is really good advice. Yeah, fantastic advice. It just struck me, actually, because, you know, so you're talking about a sort of a slightly rebellious punk Sir Tim. How does it feel being a sir? How did it feel getting that gong? When when people say it, do you wince? What's what's the internal dialogue going on for you when people refer to you as sir? Um, gosh, I I that, that that's a really uh, a perceptive question. I I feel uncomfortable at one level. I mean, I I am very proud, if that's the right word, uh, because being English is my I'm half English, half Dutch. Um, and being recognized in that way is very flattering. Uh, so that's nice. I, I'm not too keen on the distancing effect of it in the social milieu where you see people's eyes or body language become deferential because you've got those three letters at the start of your name. Um, I would prefer to be respected or not respected simply by virtue of what I've actually said rather than what that those three letters represent. Um, and it's funny because most people that I work with, uh, I ask them to just call me Tim. Uh, I, I feel very uncomfortable being called Sir Tim. It's very funny. There are some people who are brought up, say, in the military that feel more awkward not calling you Sir Tim when you are a sir. Um, <laughs> but generally, I prefer just to be Tim. Um, and if people discover I'm a sir, um, that's fine too. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm flattered by it, but uncomfortable by it being my everyday moniker. And as, and as we move towards uh, founder syndrome, much talked about, 
how, yeah. how does that fit with you and you know your your focus on the international side of Eden these days um do you do you think you've suffered founder syndrome and what is for you I've got I've got kind of inverse founder syndrome I keep saying to all my colleagues we have got to find a replacement for me um uh, uh, the trouble with the vanity of being a founder of anything um is that actually the greatest disservice you can uh, you can give it is to then make it completely dependent on you so ironically your vanity is going to crush it because an awful lot of organizations um just wilt when the founder dies or leaves unless you've captured in your appointment of the next leader or leadership group um uh, the kind of energy that's required to make the place never be in stasis. So we're actually looking at that right now. Um, I, I, I have some very s- smart young people working for me um, and uh, increasingly not for me, but just with me. Um, and I try and give guidance. I, I've, I've made it the last couple of years. I've made a big point of introducing the youngsters to all of my contact so that people understand that I respect these people and they don't have to say, oh, we, no, we only really want to deal with Sir Tim. Um, mm. And that's a great vulnerability. And because I know that when influential people meet my youngsters, um, they'll be very impressed with them. So strangely, it's a kind of gentle handover. I'm trying to gently hand over um, and also make sure that the culture we have uh, is not authoritarian in terms of wanting to make sure it's just people like us running the project one of the great things you need to protect in any organization if it's going to remain muscular in its intent is you've got to keep members of the awkward squad in your team you've got to have people who are testing you all the time you said so and so and this is what's happening because actually that little word compromise it just gets in there all the time and of course, there are times when you've got to compromise, but there are also far too many times when you compromise because it gives you the easy life. Yeah. And I think, you know, Eden of today is testament to um, your ability to put people in the right positions, doing the right thing. Uh, like you said, you, you don't mind being tested. And in fact, you implore people to test you and, and to challenge you. Um, I mean, big thank you for creating the Eden Project because for me as a, a New Zealander living in Britain for so long, um, you know, walking through, uh, you know, a New Zealand climate once a year was, was fantastic. Uh, that sense of discovery as a family we had when we went to the Eden Project. So we were, you know, through the biome, moving from Africa to Asia, uh, each time noticing something different and, and so unique as well. You know, like you sort of out of the, the, the Cornish um, uh, summer rain into, you know, all parts of the world. Absolutely phenomenal. So thank you for thinking big because uh, it, it helps. It's, it sort of had an impact on my life, my family's life. Um, and well done for... Um, We're coming to New Zealand. We're going to be in you New You are. Zealand. You're yeah. coming to Christchurch. And it goes back to what you said about kissing frogs. So, you know... The, most people who are listening will know that uh, Christchurch had a, a devastating earthquake uh, and there is still remains a red zone, um, which is a, an, an area of Christchurch in the centre. We're actually not a million miles away from the Avon River where, uh, you know, there's no building going on, but 
but uh, I believe that Eden New Zealand will be focused on kissing a frog, if I want to say. Well, yeah, actually, it's probably going to be more like kissing an eel um, because uh, we want to build an Eden New Zealand. And what's been great has been dealing with, um, you know, Mass Papui and all the, the cultural guys down there. And we're just conductors of this amazing orchestra. So I hope very soon you'll hear wonderful things about us on the bend of the river Avon, uh, because we dearly like to be be there, and we, we think that New Zealand, um, uh, New Zealand, and and all New Zealanders have a, lot, a much bigger story to tell. And we also think the story of pure New Zealand is a bit tired and worn, and um, we'd like to work with you to create an excitement about revisioning the future of. Uh, New Zealand through um, the leadership in green technology and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I hope yeah, very soon we'll be you, old son. Excellent. And I can envisage it'll be the launch with you sitting in Blighty on a Zoom call. Uh, but, but hopefully that's not the case and you'll be here in person. So massive thank you for tonight. Um, this interview, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a real discovery on lots of topics and um Lots of good stuff for my listeners to digest. I really appreciate it, uh, and we'll speak soon. Marvellous. Well, goodbye from a long way away, but soon to be close. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye now. A massive thank you for joining tonight's podcast really enjoyed my conversation with sir tim smith the man's got a huge intellect has incredible ideas he's a real thinker and for me his reflections on what it is to be a social entrepreneur and what it should look like was really insightful uh, please recommend us so you can capture us on spotify apple Podcasts, and anchor if you like what you hear please leave a review it really help us and um, i'll see you in the next episode thank you listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.